morning, Four Oaks. Pastor Paul, the lead pastor here at Four Oaks Kalarn, I'm going to invite you to open your Bibles to Romans chapter 14. I think Scott voiced that well. How do you, as a church family, as you're hearing the, the story of Craig and Rachel and being reminded anew and afresh of it, what's, where do we go with that? What do we do? And I'm thinking about Peter's words, and you've heard me say this many times here. When at the at an at incredibly low point in the disciples' life, as the as the crowds were deserting Jesus in mass, and Jesus turns to them and says, "Would would you go as well? In other words, would you would you leave me?" And Peter, you can imagine him sort of exasperated, says, "But Lord, where would we go?" You, you have the words of eternal life. And that's very much our posture here this morning, guys, that, that this world is full of grief and sorrow and sin and suffering, and it impacts us, it impacts the world, impacts our neighbors. We have to go somewhere with that. Where do we go? We go to God. And where has God revealed himself? He has revealed himself in his word. And so I'm going to just pray one more time for us. I feel like that would be appropriate this morning that God would just bring the healing balm of his word um, to the Boltmans, to us, as we go to the only place where there is hope in life. Let's pray. Lord, we do thank you for, for Craig and Rachel. We thank you for their testimony, their story, their faithfulness. Father, it's, it's not something you put a bow on. Lord, and, and as believers, we can freely acknowledge that, the impact of, of sin and sorrow and death in this life. And so, Lord, we, we have to have something. Lord, you, you've got to give us something more, and you have. You've given us your son, Jesus. And Jesus has given us this word. And so, Father, we pray that you would build up the body of Christ. Give us ears to hear, eyes to see this morning as we turn to your word. In your name we pray. Amen. All right, Romans 14. Guys, we are in the home stretch of our sermon series through the book of Romans. We're going to start a series through the book of Matthew beginning in the Advent season, but we've got four, five, six weeks left here. And this really is the home stretch. You know, and oftentimes you hear coaches. Um, football coaches say things like, you know, we, we play the whole game so that we can be ready for that one or two plays that will decide the game. In other words, everything that happens in the course of a game is not irrelevant. I mean, it's crucial, it's foundational, it's important, but, but we have to finish strong. And in a lot of ways, that's what Romans 12 through 16 are for us. Let's be honest, Romans 1 through 11, those are the money chapters, right? Those where the books are written, the commentaries are, the sermons are preached. I mean, and, and understandably, incredible truths, the gospel, justification, righteousness. I mean, it, it, it's the future of Israel. I mean, we're, I mean, some of our favorite passages in all of God's word are in Romans 1 through 12. But it's interesting, when you look at the literature, when you look at the sermon series, a lot of times people start to sort of peter out towards the end, right? There's not as many sermons over these last chapters. There's not as many commentaries written, not as many blog posts. But I think if the Apostle Paul were here, he would say that is a big mistake. 
Because in a lot of ways, Romans 1 through 11 delivers us right up to that point, which impresses upon us how then shall we live? In light of Romans 8.28, in light of Romans 8.1, what, what are we supposed to do? How are we support, supposed to move forward as the people of God? And, and Paul captures the essence of the Christian faith, the Christian manifesto we've called it in Romans 12.1-2, when he says this. He says, in view of the mercies of God, in other words, in view of everything that I've written to you up to this point, Offer your bodies as living sacrifices, as your spiritual act of worship. And then Paul, as Paul is wont to do, he sort of systematically lays out what does that look like in all these different areas? What does it look like in our spiritual gifts to do that? What does it look like to love one another as we offer our bodies as living sacrifices? What does it mean to love the world? How do we submit to the governing authorities in our lives? And finally, here in Romans 14, Paul turns his attention to one final area, and this is going to capture our attention really for the next three weeks or so. It's the last major section in Romans, and here is Paul's concern. In view of the mercies of God, that we are all saved by grace, those of us who know Jesus Christ, how are we to love each other and honor the Lord even when we disagree? Maybe I should rephrase that. How are we to love the Lord and love each other, particularly when we disagree? Let's remember one of the reasons that Paul is writing this letter to the church in Rome. Remember, the book of Romans did not come down to heaven as a theological tome, as a systematic theology. It was written to real people in a real place in a real time. And remember that it was in part because of the disagreements between the Jewish Christians and the Gentile Christians in the church in Rome that Paul is writing. See, the Jewish Christians, and we talked about this at the beginning of our sermon series, they were the founders of the church in Rome. The church was theirs, but they were expelled from Rome in 49 AD by Claudius, only to return five years later, and they kind of found that the church was no longer theirs. It was a bunch of these Gentile Christian squatters who were in their church, right? who did things differently, who had different customs, they smelled differently, they ate differently. You may have heard the story recently about the family who had the vacation home in watercolor, and while they were gone, 300, ready, youths, okay, or youths, okay, broke in and had a big party. Now, understand, this was not the kind of party where they were playing categories or apples to apples, right? This was a full-on rager. I mean, this was like the cops were called, the house was destroyed. That's kind of like what the Jewish Christians were experiencing with their Gentile brothers and sisters. They just were different people. And what ended up happening is one side said, you know, if you were spiritually obedient and faithful to Christ, this is what you would do. This is how you would live. The other side would say, oh yeah, if you were spiritually faithful and obedient to Christ, this is what you would do. Now, as I think about this issue as it was sort of percolating in the church in Rome, again, I can't, and I don't think I'm going out on a limb here, I can't help but think just how timely this is for the church. And by the church, I don't just mean four oaks, I do mean the kind of the church global, certainly here in North America, I have to ask this question, and this is not chronological snobbery on my part. I'm sure there's, there's, 
this is not completely true, but I can never remember a time where there has been so much disagreement between committed evangelical Christians who have been together for the gospel, who've been united in their statements of faith, united in their theological convictions, but so disunified on how to live out those truths. And the reality is we may be together for the gospel, but think about all the things that we are not together for, right? Not us made a, made a list of a few, right? We're together for the gospel, but we're not always together for voting. We're not always together for politics. We're not always together on the best way to school our children or what our policies for media should be. We're not always on the same page for our COVID protocols. What, what do we do when Christians disagree? That's Paul's topic this morning. It's going to be ours, and we're going to be in Romans 14. So if you can, I'm going to invite you to stand, and we're going to read Romans 1 through 12. And this is going to be sort of kind of the, the first of three parts, so to speak, this morning, where Paul kind of lays out the foundation for us. So let's look in Romans 14, beginning in verse 1. As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. One person believes he may eat anything, while the weak person eats only vegetables. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains, and let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats, for God has welcomed him. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls, and he will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand. One person esteems one day as better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. The one who observes the day observes it in honor of the Lord. The one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord, since he gives thanks to God, while the one who abstains, abstains in honor of the Lord and gives thanks to God. For none of us lives to himself, and none of us dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord, and if we die, we die to the Lord. So then, whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. For to this end, Christ died and lived again, that he might be the Lord both of the dead and of the living. Why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or you, why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, all live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall confess to God. So then each of us will give an account of himself to God. Let's pray. Lord, once more, we ask for your grace and blessing over this text. Lord, we, we confess. We don't know how to do this. We don't know how to walk in unity around the essentials while at the same time disagreeing, sometimes strongly about non-essentials. And so, Lord, we need your help. We need your grace. And Lord, we ask now that you would bless our time in your word. In your name we pray, amen. Please take your seats. There's three points this morning, and I'm going to warn you, I got a little cute with these, okay? And, and so just go with it. First of all, we're going to talk about disputed matters. Secondly, our disputing, comma, matters. 
And then finally, the undisputed matters. And if those sound like Jeopardy categories, they are. I took them from Friday's show. But anyway, they, they seem to work. Not really. But here we go. Disputed matters. What, what exactly is Paul talking about here? Look at verse 1. He says, As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. Now that word opinions, it literally means in the Greek, guess what? Disputed matters. Matters of dispute. Matters of disagreement. This is so important for us to understand, church, because what Paul is not talking about is orthodoxy. He's not talking about the core essentials of the Christian faith. He's not talking about doctrinal truths. He's not talking about what's happening in Romans 1 through 11. That is the heart of the gospel. Um, it is what we, it's, it's, it's hardly mere, but it's certainly at least mere Christianity. It's the foundational core parts of our truth. That's what Paul, Paul is not referring to that here in when he talks about opinions. If that's what he was referring to, he would have called it heresy, right? He would have called it false teaching. But verse 10 reminds us that Paul is addressing here brothers and sisters. So these are people who are united in Romans 1 through 11. But what happens after that? Not so much. Okay. Now, the reformers in the 16th century called these issues adiaphora, which means matters of indifference. And by that, they did not mean that we are to be indifferent to them or that they're not important. After all, if they weren't important, why would Paul be writing about them, right? What they meant, and I think what Paul means about this idea of opinions, is they do not lie at the heart of Christian orthodoxy. Those are things worth arguing about. But that's another sermon. That's not this sermon. This sermon is about the non-essentials, the adiaphora, the things that are disputed that were, make no mistake, tearing this church apart, the church in Rome, around two issues primarily. The issues of what to eat and then what days to observe. Now, where do we get that? Look at verse 2 and look at verse 5. One person believes he may eat anything while the weak person eats only vegetables. Okay, there's the first. Second one's verse 5. One person esteems one day as better than another while another esteems all days alike. Now, us 21st century folk, because we're prone to chronological snobbery, this seems absolutely silly. What to eat and what days to observe. Where... Where does this sort of come from? Let's think about the context here for a second. Faithful Jews who were reared as Jews, who grew up as Jews, but then converted to Christianity, were continuing to observe and be obedient to the things that they were taught as a part of Judaism. Now understand, they didn't think those things saved them. Okay, that... that those are called Judaizers. These were not Judaizers. These were people, Jewish Christians, who conscientiously continued to observe certain food laws and certain holy days, probably the Sabbath, because for them, that was, a, that was part and parcel of obeying the Lord, walking in faithfulness, having a, a spirit of submission, of covenant loyalty. So even though Jesus had abolished 
those Old Testament laws, or, or actually he, he fulfilled them. We're going to talk about that in a second. These Jewish Christians continued to practice these Jewish customs. They were highly ingrained. For them, they were a matter of conscience. They were a matter of conviction. But here comes the uncouth Gentile, right? the swashbuckling libertarians. They, they had a pork chop in one hand and a glass of wine in the other. They were partying on the Sabbath, and this was an absolute scandal. And the Jews were saying, how can you, have you lost your mind? How can you be obedient to God and walk faithfully and still be a Christian and do those things? And the Gentiles are like, why are you guys so uptight? Chill out, bro. We've got freedom in Christ. Now, interesting the way Paul refers to these two groups. Right? Look back at the text. He refers to them as the weak and the strong. Verse 2, one person believes he can eat anything. That's the strong person. Then he goes on to say, the weak person believes he can eat only vegetables. Now, it's important for us to understand what Paul means and doesn't mean by these words, strong and weak. He does not mean that they are weak in character. He does not mean that they are weak in conviction. And he does not mean that they are sinful. What he means is that this is a description of their theological maturity, their knowledge of the word. You see, they had a clear conviction about what the Bible was teaching about this specific issue. And this is what made the strong strong and the weak weak. Let, 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 let me show you how this works. Remember, Jesus had taught that there are no more dietary restrictions under the old, uh, under the new covenant. Under the old covenant, God had given dietary restrictions as a way to, for the people of Israel to walk separately in holiness and faithfulness to God. But listen to what Jesus says in Mark 7. And he said to them, then, you, then are you also without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him, since it enters not his heart but his stomach and is expelled? Thus he declared all foods clean. Okay. The same thing was true of the holy days and the Sabbath. In the Old Testament, God called the people to observe not just the Sabbath, but festivals and feast days. But under the new covenant, Jesus said, we're going to, do, we're going to eat a little bit on the Sabbath, right? Because why? I'm the Lord of the Sabbath. I fulfill the Sabbath. The writer of Hebrews says, Jesus is now our Sabbath rest all of our days, not just the Lord's day, but all of our days belong to him. And by the way, this doesn't mean that we don't have a Sabbath principle. Again, that's another sermon or that we shouldn't rest or worship. It just means we don't observe them in the same ways as the Jews did under the old covenant. Paul makes this very clear in Colossians. Listen to what he says. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink. There it is. Or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. So let's, 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 let's review here. The strong are strong precisely because they understand that the feast days and dietary laws are adiaphora. They're fine if you do them, 
but they are not required and they are not necessarily a marker of spiritual maturity. However, this is really important for us to understand and know. It's foundational to what Paul is going to call us to do in relationship to one another. Paul does not say that the strong are right and holy and that the weak are wrong and sinful. Guys, he does not rebuke the weak. See, what he says is that what both the weak and the strong, they are doing to honor the Lord. And they're doing it in accordance with the biblical knowledge that they have answering to the Lord in their own conscience. Look at verse 6. The one who observes the day, Paul doesn't say stop observing. He just says observes it in honor of the Lord. The one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord, since he gives thanks to God. While the one who abstains, and Paul doesn't say stop abstaining, abstains in honor of the Lord and gives thanks to God. Now, here's the reality. The church has always had the weak and the strong and always will. That's not a bad thing. These groups can very much help one another. In fact, you may be weak and strong on different issues. You, you, you may put on the weak hat or the strong hat for various things, depending on a whole host of things, your background, your family, how you were raised, your culture, what kind of church you were in growing up, what kind of trauma or pain or abuse you've suffered along the way, or suffering. These can all, we can all be weak or strong, and most certainly are, on a variety of issues. I was reminded of this. We had a marriage event here a number of years ago um, in this auditorium, and because we are so strong in our faith, we were playing secular music as couples were coming into the marriage conference, right? Frank Sinatra, of course. What else would you play at a marriage conference, right? And I remember this more mature couple came in, elderly couple came in, and as they heard the music, they were mortally offended. I mean, really offended. Because this is the Lord's house, right? This is an auditorium. This is... This is reserved for worship, and to sort of do that sort of thing is, is, is not kosher at all. Now, now, let me just say something right here. There's no chapter and verse for this. If we're talking about Sunday morning Lord's Day worship, that's another issue. But there's no chapter and verse for the Friday night auditorium event at a community event. It wasn't, but for them, for, for maybe the strong, that, that's cool. It's what we do. For the weak, that was an issue of conscience. And for them to continue to violate their conscience, okay, would have made it sin for them. Now, let me just say this before we all get snarky, right? Because we know, we know the snark here, right? We're, we're, we can be a little uppity, the strong. Let's keep in mind everyone here has a list of things for which you feel are of the utmost importance for being a faithful Christian. I don't ask you, do you have them? We all do. I ask you, do you know what yours are? And I just kind of gave a few examples here just to kind of get the juices flowing. If you were a faithful Christian, you would send your kids to school here, but never there. 
If you really loved your neighbor, this is what you would have done during COVID. If you really trusted God, this is what you would have done in COVID. If you were a, if you were a spiritual Christian, this is how you would handle your food. This is how you would handle your finances. This is how you would handle your friends. Because I remember having just, I mean, an extended discussion with someone a couple of years ago, and you would have thought we were talking about justification by faith, the sort of intensity that, that came up around the issue of money. Should churches do this, or should they accept these funds, or how should we manage debt, or whatever? And I said, you know, it sounds to me like this is like a first-tier issue for you. He's like, yep, it is. And broke fellowship. Again, not to pick on that person, because this is all of us, right? The key is going to be understanding what it is that God has called us to do, whether we are the strong or whether we are the weak, which gets us into our second point. So we go from disputable matters to our disputing matters. Now, it's very interesting here. Paul spends much less time, I would say no time, discussing these particular issues. That's what we would do. He spends much more time talking about how we're to relate to and love each other in the midst of our disputes. Isn't that interesting? We, we want to come to community group and talk about all the opinions. Paul says, I don't want you to do that. Here, I, have a, I have a word for you, weak and strong brothers and sisters. Now, as Kent Hughes notes about this passage, it is amazing how Paul, 2,000 years ago, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, just puts his finger right on the, the kind of the psychological dynamic that takes place in these discussions oftentimes. Let's, let's look back at the text for a second. Let's look, first of all, at what Paul says to the strong. Verse 3, let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains. Let not those who play the secular music on a Friday night despise the ones whose conscience it violates. See, what is the universal tendency of those who are stronger or more powerful? And this is universal across all scopes. It's in sports, it's in politics, it's in competition. Those who are strong are most prone to what? disdain those who are weak. What does Goliath say? What is, what, what, when, when he's calling out the, the people of soldiers of Israel, who, who is there? Who can stand up to me? He holds them in contempt. He holds them into disdain. I remember I was in fourth or fifth grade and we played uh, kickball on the Eastridge Elementary School parking lot. And it was one of those rare days, it happened maybe once in my life, where all the good guys were on the same team, okay? It was just like, you know, Haley's Comet appeared, everything converged, right? And what did we do? Were we humble little fourth graders? We invite you to a match. No, it's like we're going to kill you and taunt you and step on your head. And then, of course, the recess ended and we couldn't finish the game. You know, you know how this works, right? It is the universal tendency of the strong to always disdain the weak, to always hold them in contempt. You can't see that movie? What's wrong with you? You can't, you can't drink socially? 
What are you, a Puritan? Are you just, an, just an, a spiritual infant, just a knave? We disdain. And Paul says, don't disdain. That's his word of the week. Now listen to his word. That's his word for the strong. Now listen for his word for the weak. Go back to the text. Let not the one who abstains pass judgment over the one who eats. Again, what is the universal versal tendency of the weak? Of the, in other words, those who have scruples, those who have a sensitive conscience. Well, it's obvious, isn't it? We pass judgment. You're you're not homeschooling your kid. What's wrong with you? You're sending him off to a government school. I would never do that. You're, 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 you're drinking publicly. You're not putting your baby on a feeding schedule and a sleeping schedule. You're not growing kids God's way. I don't know what's wrong with you, right? We, that, 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 that just slid that one in there just for fun, right? What does Paul say to the weak? We're all weak in some way. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls, and he will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand. He's sending, they're sending their kid to the school they think God wants them to send it to. Shut up. It's not your, it's not your business. In other words, Paul says, when we judge about opinions, what's so wrong with that? It's because we're taking the place of Christ. There's only one judge. And they have to answer, every one of us has to answer to that judge. That's why Paul says everyone has to be fully convinced in their own mind. Why am I doing this? For what reason am I doing this? Is this for the glory of God? And we entrust ourselves as brothers and sisters to the one who judges rightly. So, so that's what we're to not do, right? What then is the prescription? If we're not to disdain if we're not to hold in contempt, if we're not to judge, what does Paul say to do? Not to oversimplify. It's simply this. Look at verse 1, and he says it again in verse 4. Welcome. Welcome each other. So his prescription for matters that we would dispute on are, are what? Don't. Don't dispute. <laughs> Don't even go there. Doesn't mean you can't have a discussion. Doesn't mean you can't talk as brother. That's not what Paul's talking about. Paul's talking about don't have a conflict that breaches fellowship. Don't have a conflict where you, maybe you kind of agree to disagree, but you go along afterwards and it's like, let's just kind of keep our polite distances. We know that he's in that group. We know she's in that group. And they run with their people. When we run with ours, Paul says, no, 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 no. Welcome them. What does that word mean? John Stott notes this. It means to welcome into one's fellowship and into one's heart. It implies the warmth and kindness of genuine love. Guys, it's hard to be close to someone that you're arguing with, isn't it? This is, this is no polite distance that Paul is talking about. Paul is talking about an intimate friendship. And this is so important that we have this posture because there's another complicating factor to all this. I'll just throw this in there. Sometimes we can't even agree on who the weaker brother and the stronger brother are, can we? We both think we're stronger. 
It's never we both think we're weaker, do it? It never works that way, right? I'm just going to go here. You're wearing a mask because you're afraid you'll get sick. Well, you're obviously the weaker brother. You're not trusting God. You're not wearing a mask. What's wrong with you? Don't you love your neighbor? Obviously, you're the weaker brother. What would Paul say? Shut up, okay? If you think you are the stronger brother, good, because there's actually more responsibility for you. Did you know that? There's actually, actually, as the stronger brother, not only do you not judge, but you can't disdain either. You've got to cover all of your bases. It's really upon you to welcome them. Did you, do you see that? When Paul says, as for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, that, that's the initiative for the stronger brother. It's always up to the stronger brother to bridge the gap. Even as both are called to not disdain and to not judge. If you think you're the stronger brother, God bless you. That just means God has given you even more of a responsibility to welcome your weaker brothers. To bring into intimate fellowship. And, and Paul tells us why we can welcome one another, right? It's because Jesus welcomed you. Do, do you see? Because we, we were actually all weaker brothers. We were actually all failures, sinful, separated from God. And Jesus, while we were yet sinners, while we were yet weak, Christ died for us. And Paul seems to be saying, if Jesus welcomed you, you judgmental, condemning, disdaining know-it-alls, oh boy, those who are forgiven much, forgive much. So welcome one another as Jesus has welcomed you. Last point and we're done. There is the undisputed matter. There's disputed matters in the church. There will always be disputed matters. But Paul wants to end this little section by reminding us of the one undisputed matter. Verse 9. For to this end Christ died and lived again, that he might be both Lord of the dead and Lord of the living. Now listen to this. For we all stand before the judgment seat of God. Now, let's be honest and hear what Paul is highlighting for us is that ultimately it is Christ the judge. And when we think about that, quite honestly, that can have a really negative connotation for most of us, right? Because what does standing before a judge denote? I mean, it denotes judgment, the pronouncement of sentence. There's some sort of punishment being handed out. There's some sort of verdict being read. No one wants to stand before a judge. Pastor Paul, why is the Apostle Paul holding up this idea that all of this is rooted and predicated on this idea that Jesus is judge? Here, here, here's what I think Paul's getting at. Guys, you realize, don't you, that rendering someone guilty is not the only thing a judge can do. It's just as much in the power of a judge to render you not guilty as it is guilty. See, and, the, and, and that's the picture here. Paul is calling all of us to entrust ourselves to Jesus the judge because why? We've already been judged in Christ. 
We have already heard the verdict. We are already declared not guilty. We have already been given the robes of the righteousness of Christ. We are already a justified people, which means we have nothing to fear by giving up our own rights. We have nothing to fear by no longer disdaining. We have nothing to fear by no longer judging. We can come before our brother and sister because ultimately Christ has declared us righteous. Because let me just say something. Some of us, when we think back to the last two to three years particularly, it may be dawning on some of us that maybe we made a spiritual mess or two over the last couple of years. Maybe we argued or caused division or gossiped or posted. Maybe we judged when we shouldn't have judged. Maybe we disdained when we shouldn't have disdained. Maybe we did not welcome when God called us to welcome. I think it's very appropriate, particularly as we prepare to come to the Lord's table this morning, to say, is there someone, some person, some group that God would have you circle back around to in this season? To say, you know, brother or sister, I, I said this, I did this judged you, I condemned you. Would you forgive me? Jesus has welcomed me. Of course I'm going to welcome you. When Paul tells us in Corinthians to examine ourselves before coming to the table and to not eat or drink of the table in an unworthy manner, he's not speaking primarily of becoming obsessively self-focused, plumbing the depths of our souls for every little sin. Actually, in context, he's talking about the breaking of fellowship that happened in the church in Corinth. He's actually talking about the divisions that were happening among them. And guess what? It was over some of the very same issues. So as Paul is inviting them to the table, he invites them to examine themselves. He invites them to say, you know what? As I'm coming to the altar today, is there someone that Jesus would have me go and make it right for that person? Because what an opportunity we have this morning as we partake in the Lord's table, as we're renewing our fellowship with Christ, as we're reveling and celebrating in the fact that Jesus has welcomed us through his death on our behalf that we also would renew our fellowship with one another. Brooks, who in this church family is God calling you to welcome anew this season? I'm going to ask us just to, to spend a moment or two just silently to yourself meditating on that, preparing your heart to come to the table. And even as you're coming to the table this morning and having that fellowship renewed, God would put it in your heart of, I need to renew with my brother. So spend just a moment or two silently reflecting on that. And as you do, I'm going to invite our leaders to come forward to prepare to serve the table for us.